At no point in the play does Tony like, you're right, this is never going to work. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai, excited to getting to jump into another conversation around a play with all of you out there. That's right. We are in the middle of our themed month for season seven. Longtime listeners know that every season we take a month to focus on scripts, which rather than being a huge variety, actually have something to do with each other. We've done a lot of things in the past. We've done a month of Arthur Miller scripts. We've done a month of scripts with magic in them. We've done a month of one act scripts. There's been all kinds. And this season we are doing a month of murder plays. Yes, murder plays, all having to do with the theme of murder in some way. We've already done Macbeth uh, two weeks ago, uh, and then last week we did Death Trap and had some good conversation around that, and this week is going to be a little bit different. There are there We typically do four weeks in a themed month, and this November happens to have five Mondays in it, so we uh, are introducing a little bit of a change into our themed month rhythm. That's right. We thought that five weeks in a row of murder murder sounded like a lot of murder just too too much too much for our lives you know we got a lot going on in our life beyond the podcast so we just couldn't introduce five weeks of dark murder into the middle of our (laughs) lives just suddenly and so rather than cutting off a week at the beginning or the end of november we thought why not take a break from the death and destruction of murder month and instead do a nice light-hearted comedy something that has nothing to do with murder the word death does appear in this script interesting but I think it's mostly for comedic (laughs) effect. There is no murder in today's play. We are talking about You Can't Take It With You by Moss Hart and George S. Kaufman. Yes, uh, this play is just kind of a wild ride, a wild kind of comedic a sort of comedy of manners, maybe I don't know, um, but but uh, certainly a family dynamic comedy um, uh, that that's just going to be a lot of fun to talk about. It'll certainly, be a fun one to go and watch. Uh, there's a bunch of different productions, both recorded um, and produced. So so yeah, I'm excited to get to talk about it. Right, yeah, and we're we're actually closing in on. I mean, in the grand scope of things, this script's hundred year anniversary. We're about fifteen wow. years away still, but it's been around for uh, more than eighty years at this point has You Can't Take It With You and it's still very, very popular. There are productions of this script done all over America in community theaters, in educational theaters. It got a Broadway revival, which we'll talk about in context very recently. And uh, I was in a production of this play several years ago at my alma mater, (laughs) Northwestern College. This was totally unintentional. We did not plan this, but this is the third week in a row (laughs) of scripts that we have been in. (laughs) Wow, yeah. We could have had a different style of themed month this whole time. That's true. We could have switched Tally's Folly to be right before Macbeth, and then it would have been like four weeks in a row of scripts that we have acted in. Yes, I played uh, Kulyankov, the Russian dance instructor, in a role which required me to grow the hair on my head and the hair on my face to outrageous lengths. 
And so any pictures of me from that time in my life look nothing like me these days. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, well, we're excited to get to jump into the conversation around it. We do want to take just a second and thank our patrons over at patreon.com slash no script podcast. Thank you all so much for being a part of being the part of making this show possible. Um, we love getting to do this show. We love getting to do uh, these plays and get to talk about them both with each other and all of you out there in podcast land and the patrons over at patreon.com slash no script podcast make that possible. The show costs some money to produce. We have hosting fees. We have costs of scripts. We have a significant time commitment uh, as a part of editing and, and maintaining this podcast. And and the, the, the patrons over there help us out enormously to 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 support the show in that way. Uh, over there, if you if you uh, visit patreon.com slash no script podcast, you will find a number of different tiers, the lowest level being at $1. And, and we are, we are fond of saying, we hope you are getting $1 a month of value, $12 over the course of a year out of this show. We, 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 <laughs> at least we hope that is the case. We have a lot of fun doing it certainly. Um, and so, so if you are either a longtime listener who are looking for a way to help out the show or a new listener and are liking what you're hearing in the themed months and stuff like that, you can head over to patreon.com slash no script podcast you'll see a bunch of different stuff over there including patron only posts of productions uh that some some of uh, the the production photos that that have jacob or, or i in them so head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we will see you over there thank you thank you thank you if you're a supporter you make doing this possible we so appreciate you now back to the script here we go. So another fun thing about this script in connection with previous conversations is that this script by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart, George S. Kaufman appears by name in the script that we talked about last week, Death Trap. He's, uh, of course, a playwright <laughs> that they discuss, and uh, the, the character from Death Trap discusses wanting to do or, or having done, I apologize, having done a theatrical project with George S. Kaufman in Death Trap. So that's interesting that his name appears now and we're doing a play by him. Again, unplanned. These are just fun connections that you make when you read a lot of scripts right in a row. And it is an interesting tie because what he's discussing in Death Trap, again, is a joint writing project. And those joint writing projects are really what define George S. S. Kaufman's career. Kaufman is, I think he, I think the number is that he only ended up writing one script in the myriad of very popular scripts that he wrote only one script of those was written by himself only. He is a playwright who writes in conjunction with other playwrights. So uh, there's going to be two playwrights to do a brief introduction over here. So stick with us. Kaufman uh, was an uh, early 20th century writer. He died kind of right in the middle of the 20th century. He was a director and a playwright and a critic. Um, he wrote a lot of plays and also some musicals. And he also won the Pulitzer Prize, not only for this script, which I'll mention when we start talking about the script, but he was a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner because he also won in 1932 for his musical Of The I Sing, which is the first musical to win a Pulitzer Prize. Um, Kaufman started out as a humor columnist and then a drama reporter and editor in New York. He got his first play premiere in 1918 in the middle of the flu epidemic. In fact, 
he is famously quoted at a little self-mockery by saying, if you really want to stay away from people, come see one of my plays because <laughs> there's nobody in the audiences. And it, it's fun to, to see that in his career and come back to this play now in the middle of our own epidemic. I don't know if fun's the right word, but it's uh, uh, yeah, ironic, it's en- engaging, <laughs> ironic. There you go. There, That's yeah, a yeah, yeah. Um, famously from 1921 to 1958, so that's more than 30 years, Broadway had a George S. Kaufman script on its stages every season for that period of whatever, you know, 25, 26, 27 years. Um, and again, he co-authored virtually everything he ever wrote. Moss Hart is George S. Kaufman's most famous collaborator. Hart, again, early 20th century. Um, he got his first play on Broadway in 1930, a play called Once in a Lifetime, which was a play he co-authored with Kaufman. Um, the Together, these two guys wrote The Man Who Came to Dinner, another famous play. Um, and they all, also, Moss Hart individually worked on one of the screenplay adaptions in the long storied life of the story, the, the movie phenomenon, A Star is Born. If you know the recent A Star is Born adaption, then you know that that is a story that has been remade time and time again by Hollywood. And Moss Hart was responsible for one of those screenplays in like the 50s, I believe. Moss Hart was also the president of the Dramatists Guild for about nine years before um, Hammerstein took over. Both Moss Hart and George S. Kaufman are in the American Theater Hall of Fame. This script premiered on Broadway in 1936 at the Booth Theater. George Kaufman directed that production, and it ran for 838 performances, which is an enormous number for 1936, and it is still very popular. There was a 1983 revival. There was a 1985 revival. There was a 2014 Broadway revival at the Longacre Theater where James Earl Jones, the man himself, played Grandpa. That sounds incredible. I would pay a lot of money to watch James Earl Jones play Grandpa in this script. Of course, there's been several film adaptions. 1938 film directed by Frank Capra. Uh, They did some changing of the script. They removed the Grand Duchess character. Always been sort of a confusing character at the end. Uh, They also added uh, like a real estate subplot where the Kirbys are trying to buy out Grandpa's home from under him. So did some adaption of the story. That, That movie ended up going on to win Best Picture in 1938. So like the script won the Pulitzer Prize in 1938. And then the movie adaption of the script won Best Picture in 1938. So a fairly storied and awarded career. CBS did a teleplay of it in 1979. PBS did a teleplay in 1984. um, And NBC made a sitcom in 1987 and 88 that ran for one season, loosely based on the characters. So as I've alluded to a couple of times, this play won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1937. Uh, So that's one reason why it's still on the radar. It's one of those early comedies. The next year, just for some context, 1938, Our Town won the Pulitzer Prize. So it's it's from that genre. And then about seven years later, in 1945, a script that we've discussed on this podcast, Harvey, won the Pulitzer Prize for drama, just to set it in that kind of pattern of scripts that were coming out at the time. Very storied. uh, What I skipped in this context was like 
popular productions outside of Broadway because there's too many. This play is very popular. It is very commonly done. Community theaters, educational theaters, which is interesting because its producibility is actually a little bit of a question for me. I mean, it's big cast and funny and relatively clean, but there are some producibility problems for me (laughs) that make it odd that it's so popularly done at the community theater and educational theater level. But it is. It's everywhere. Right. Yeah. It's one of those plays that you empty out your your props closet to kind of put on your get fire a budget and your animal yeah. budget. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot of complicating things in it, certainly. Uh, I'm going to do a, a, a quick shot at at con, or synopsizing this play. Um, the play takes place. I, I think it's probably written as if it's 19. 19- 36 or 7 uh, New York. So so sometime uh, after the fall of the Russian Empire and probably (laughs) before the start of World War II. Um, Just just with context clues uh, from some of the lines in it. Um, The play takes place, as I said, in New York in the home of Martin Vanderhoff. Now, Martin Vanderhoff, who we will likely refer to as Grandpa for the rest of our conversation, is this uh, kind of uh, eccentric uh, person who has cultivated this kind of beautiful, eccentric family around him. Um, He's this person who kind of got out of business uh, a a while ago. Basically, he realized he wasn't having any fun, and he was kind of wasting a lot of his time, and he decided to take more of a break from from life and just kind of live at home with his family in a sort of eccentric way. And and to be clear, that is not Jackson's summary of, like, why Grandpa decided to get out of business. That is why (laughs) Grandpa decided to leave business. He was isn't having any fun. That's the explanation (laughs) that he provides, like, very nearly verbatim. (laughs) Yep, pretty much that. Uh, (laughs) uh, His daughter, Penny, uh, lives with him in the house, as well as her husband, Paul. And Penny is this kind of uh, uh, artist of many different stripes. The most most, uh, bold stripe that she is in currently is a playwright. The play starts with her tapping away at a typewriter, although in other parts of the play, she is an artist as well, a visual artist, a painter. Um, but but she she lives in the house as well as Paul, who is a fireworks enthusiast. Um, he uh, spends most of his a good chunk of his time down in the basement experimenting with different types of firecrackers for Fourth of July celebrations. Um, their two daughters, Essie and Alice, um, also live with them in the house. Essie is a, a ballerina and a, a dancer, um, and and her husband Ed lives with them as well. He's like a xylophone player, a printing press enthusiast. If, if you're starting to pick up that there's a lot of props in here. There's a lot of props in here. There's a printing press called for on and a stage. Xylophone. <laughs> and a xylophone. A working um, so meet... playable xylophone. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So we meet Essie and Ed as this first scene starts to go along. And then we meet Alice. Now Alice is a little bit more of the straight woman of the of the family. She uh, has a job out in the uh in, in Wall Street area. And uh, she, she uh, yeah, she, she comes home. She loves her family very much, but there's this kind of nervous energy around her as she starts to introduce that she has um, uh, fallen in love with Tony. Um, uh, Tony is the, the vice president of the company that she works at and the son of the owner of the company that she works at, Mr. Kirby. 
Um, before I get into the the ongoing plot around that, because that drives a lot of the plot, we're just going to name the other people in the house as well. We've got, uh, uh, let's see, Mr. Depina, um, who is uh, uh, who is Paul's kind of assistant in fireworks making. He uh, showed up a couple years ago and just never left. Um, <laughs> there is uh, Reba, who's kind of a, a live-at-home uh, maid and cook. Um, and, and, uh, her, her boyfriend, Donald, um, and they both are, are in the scenes very frequently. Um, there's also Boris Kolenkoff, who is, uh, as Jacob said at the beginning. Come on now. Kolenkoff. That's my character, man. <laughs> <laughs> as if me correcting yeah. you on pronunciation is at all justified <laughs> at any point in the life of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get it in when you can. Um, <laughs> Um, he is a, a Russian national who has fled the fall of Tsarist Russia um, and is in New York. He is teaching uh, SC ba uh, Ballet, so he shows up often in, in the various scenes. Um, I, th and I think that's just to note, he's <laughs> described as this enormous, hairy, muscular Russian dance instructor. For those of you, and, and fewer and fewer percentage-wise every week because the percentage of strangers listening to this podcast grows so enormously, which is wonderful. <laughs> but for those few of you who know me personally, think about me playing an enormous muscular hairy russian man it was an it was a little bit of an odd casting i would you know it was a casting against type let's say and it was very fun i enjoyed being in the production enormously there were a lot of friends but i, I always sort of look back and chuckle at that yeah <laughs> all right so we've, we've kind of met the cast of characters i'm gonna just blaze through the plot here real quick scene what one of we're meeting everyone. Is. What of it there is. We're meeting everyone, slowly kind of getting to know the eccentricity of this family. People are showing up with, you know, uh, printing press projects and fireworks are exploding in the basement. Alice comes home and says, hey, I've met this guy. Um, uh, he's coming over. He insisted on picking me up. Just please don't be too weird when he's here. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. We won't be too weird at all. Tony shows up and Tony is kind of enamored with this family to, to st uh, right off the bat almost. He kind of gets in a conversation with Penny, um, all the stuff that Alice is worried about. He seems to have kind of this this enamored and, and sort of uh, enthralled nature with the family um, as he's over for that short amount of time. While he is over, an important kind of uh, seed is planted. A tax collector comes and we start to get the narrative that Grandpa has not paid his income taxes in like... Like years, like Ever. 20 years. Since the income yeah. tax was put in place by the government right. in 1914 or whatever, he has not paid yep. a single cent. <laughs> <laughs> and Why? He has this, because he great... doesn't want to. <laughs> Exactly. It's uh, he doesn't see how it's how it's how it's useful. Um, this is one of the lines that kind of date it uh, for us a little bit. He talks about how like it has been hasn't been since the Spanish American War that we've used any of our warships. So why am I paying for them? Um, so so you have his kind of back and forth with the tax collector who eventually leaves by virtue of basically the fireworks exploding and him getting freaked out. Um, so so you have that little little bit of a seed planted, a little bit of a complicating action that gets had there, and eventually Tony and Alice leave for a night out. The family kind of continues their their uh, <laughs> robustness for the evening. Uh, the second scene of Act One is Tony and Alice returning for the night and them professing their love to one another. Um, they, they both love each other quite a bit. However, Alice continues to be worried that their families just won't um, uh, combine well. Um, she obviously works for Tony's father, uh, Mr. Kirby, and, and is just worried that her kind of eccentric family isn't going to 
uh, uh, work all that well with with his family. Um, Tony is is more or less unfazed by that, though. He keeps insisting. He, he's like, no, 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 this will be great. Let's have them over. Let's have them all meet. This is going to be great. So they leave the scene engaged and uh, with lots of interruptions from the eccentric family throughout the scene, which is delightful. Um Act two happens. Act two happens and it's just full of chaos, right? The the, the the scene starts. It's the day before the Kirbys are supposed to come over to dinner. Alice is is kind of getting everyone ready. She's saying, you know, maybe move the printing press downstairs for tomorrow, trying to organize all the food. The snakes. <laughs> yeah, get the snakes out of the aquarium. <laughs> uh, just like, you know, typical day before, let's make the dining room nice for the rich people who are coming over. Um so all of this is sort of happening. It, meanwhile, uh, Penny has brought over a drunk uh, theater artist to read one of her scripts who just like passes out on their couch. Um, there's a whole bunch of kind of complicating actions. Ed shows up saying that people had been following him while he was outside and he's not really sure he's delivering candy that Essie made because Essie makes candy for some reason um, and, and delivering those to people outside. He says he's being followed. And then in the middle of, uh, uh, well, uh, Boris uh, Kolyenkov, uh, shows up and is is leading this rather robust Hungarian ballet number. Um, there's lots of noise, lots of ruckus. Grandpa is throwing darts across the room in the middle of all of it. And right in this moment, uh, Tony and the Kirbys walk in. Now, uh, they, they are under the impression that it is, in fact, today that they're having dinner, and all of a sudden, everything shifts. Uh, uh, Grandpa gets up and is very courteous and tries to, like, lead them into a, 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 some sort of evening of entertainment, and it just goes completely sideways. Every taboo is made. Um, uh, the, the, the Mr. Kirby and Mrs. Kirby both have, like, these passion projects that are kind of brought to light and then made fun of. Um, at one point, uh, uh, Boris Kol Kolyenkov tackles Mr. Kirby to the floor. It's just terrible. Everything is terrible in terms of that. And at the end of it, they finally get up to go. And uh, like finally they break. Tony is insistent through this whole whole thing that they that they should stay, that they're staying to dinner. Finally, Mr. and Mrs. Kirby get up to go, and like a goon squad shows up. <laughs> Three government agents show up and say uh, to Ed that he is under arrest because he's been spreading like propaganda around. One of his like pet print projects is to like make these inflammatory blow up the Capitol, blow up the government, all these inflammatory printed pamphlets and give them out in the candy that he is. Yeah. Not around. that he believes any of that. It's just that, like, he says they're easy to print. Like, the communist catchphrases are, like, short and succinct and powerful. So he likes printing them because the actual act of printing them is so gratifying. But then he's yep. handing them out in 1937 or whatever. <laughs> So they all start to kind of ransack the place, holding everyone there. And then somehow uh, Mr. DePina comes upstairs. He's accosted and brought upstairs and he's left his pipe downstairs smoking. And that sets off an explosion of all the fireworks that were being prepared for July 4th. And so everyone is arrested by virtue of that. Everyone, including the Kirbys who are there. Act three is the day after those shenanigans, and Alice is just mortified. Alice is is uh, just just completely heartbroken. She sees that there's no way that these families can coincide, um, and and she is planning to leave. She's going to go stay in the Adirondacks. She says for a very long time. Um, everyone is hoping that 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 doesn't happen, but she is doing it. And she won't talk to Tony. Tony is like trying to talk to her, and 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 they and and can't. Um, 
we, we kind of have the 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 kind of it feels like this, this family is crumbling apart. Everyone's very sad about it. Everyone's very either making fun of the Kirby's or very broken up about the Kirby's and how they went to jail and had all these things happen to them. Uh, eventually, Tony does uh, make his way inside and he starts to talk to Alice. She insists that they cannot be together um, and is calling a cab, packing up, needing to leave. And then Mr. Kirby comes and is like, hey, hey, Tony, you got to come and console your mother. She's having a terrible time after being arrested for the whole night. You got to come and, and help out. And then there's this final kind of final last confrontation um, between Grandpa and Mr. Kirby and Alice and Tony, um, where Grandpa kind of lays out lays out his philosophy of life and why he thinks Mr. Kirby should probably adopt the same sort of philosophy at life. And and it seems to kind of work. Mr. Kirby kind of caves a little bit and and he was kind of this businessman, but all of a sudden he turns turns a page a little bit and is like, well, maybe, maybe that would be okay if I let some of that go a little bit, practice my saxophone a little bit. At this point, Tony confesses that he knew all along that it wasn't uh, supposed to be last night that he was supposed to be there to dinner. It's in fact this night. Oh, by the way, this night, uh, <laughs> Mr. Kolyenkov has brought the Grand Duchess of Russia for dinner. <laughs> so she walks in saying, hey, I've made a bunch of these like Russian pastry sort of things for dinner. Who wants some? Um, <laughs> And and more or less, we're, we're wrapped up pretty quickly after that point. Alice and Tony, um, after Tony confesses his his uh, intentional errancy and Mr. Kirby starts to uh, unpack himself a little bit and relax a little bit. And it's an important word for grandpa is this relax a little bit more and let life come to you. Um, the whole family kind of gathers around the table at the end and there's this kind of similar cacophony of, of robustness and ex eccentricity as this family somehow manages to pull this terrible social situation out of the, out of the tailspin. Tony and Alice are back together and presumably this family will continue to operate in a very similar chaotic fashion in love of each other for the foreseeable days. <laughs> Woof, you just sprinted, man. Or yeah. I guess it was more of a marathon than a sprint. <laughs> it That's was a bit of a marathon. That is a, there's a lot that goes on, even amidst there not really being that much plot. But there's a lot of action in the script. And that's an interesting place for us to start, I think, is just this sheer spectacle of stuff that makes up this play, right? There's fireworks that go off a number of different times in the play, right? There's fireworks they show off to people. There's a beautiful red colored lighting firework effect that's used the night that Alice gets engaged to this beautiful heartwarming fashion. There's a big explosion of all of these fireworks. So you have that kind of stuff. You have kittens called for on the desk at the beginning of the show. You've got snakes in the snake aquarium. You've got wrestling. You've got dancing. You've got candy making. You've got Russian royalty. I mean, this is, play is a cacophony of spectacle, a cacophony of wild, wild things that occur and just catch you into it. And that is part of what makes this play just so, such an incredible audience experience. That is like such a, a, the, one of the most fun parts of the amazing ride of this play is you just never know what's going to come out of the whatever doorway next. There's like so like I imagine the moment when the printing press is used for the first time to be a significant one where all of a sudden this like big enormous printing press motion happens on stage. Of course the fireworks coming up stay up up on stage frequently. Um there's there's the moment at the end of the I think the second scene where an actual practical fire effect needs to happen like center stage and the ca the whole room has to be glowing with this red light. There's just this this kind of wild excitement and and even the character 
character of the the actress who comes over, this drunk actress who repeatedly wakes up and then passes back out, <laughs> um, just adds this super chaotic and and wild element to the goings on of this family who seem to just really just roll with it and kind of love the chaoticness for themselves. Yeah, George S. Kaufman wrote in a letter to his wife about this script. He describes the script as being about a slightly mad family who sort of discover the way to live and be happy is just to go ahead and live. That's his summary of it, right? So there's these these very eccentric people, and sometimes, like, with eccentricity, eccentricity comes, like, a desire for everything to be exactly the way you want it to be, and that is sort of what, you know, I, I'm eccentric, so I want things in this exactly specific way. But this very eccentric family, in the script describes them as having, like, a sort of insanity, they just are cool with anything. Things just happen that are outside the... I mean, if any one of these things happen, like... People have snakes for pets all the time, I know, but that's somewhat rare. And that's like the one of the more outlandish, I mean, one of the least outlandish things yeah. that this family does, right? And, you know, <laughs> people, again, people have snakes for pets, but it, that that being like the pet that this family has is just the tip of the iceberg. And grandpa is the one who keeps the snakes. If you add any one of these things on top of it, okay, well, the mother's a playwright. Well, on its own, that is totally makes total sense. But she's part of a family where there's also ballet dancers and firework makers and all of this stuff. And what makes the family eccentric is the piling on of all these things that if any of them were individual would maybe be something we would understand. And the way it just kind of rolls off the back of them, too. The kind of way that they're willing to roll with it and just take it as it comes. The, the two scenes that come to mind the most for me are the so the taxpayer scene, right? Where he comes over and he, and he audits him, basically. And, and he's just like, he's just able to talk his way out of it. Um, and then, then later on, when the chaos, the chaos just like truly erupts at the end of Act 2. The fireworks go off. Everyone's running all over the place. The, the goon squad is there trying to like arrest people. And you see and and the 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 stage directions call for grandpa to just kind of like smile and sit down in the middle of the chaos and like (laughs) twitch with the darts basically and want to be throwing the darts at the wall like this is what i love about life like and frequently he says that like (laughs) that when the when the absurdity of the grand duchess of of russia being there um for dinner comes up he's like man if this keeps happening i'm gonna live to over a hundred and i'm gonna be just fine the whole time yeah those are my two favorite moments in the play. So the first one is when they've all come back from being arrested. Grandpa basically says, if stuff like this keeps happening, I'm going to live to be more than 100. It's just too interesting to die, basically. <laughs> and then the Grand Duchess comes and he's like, never mind 100, I'll live to 150. I just yeah. love, like, to me, that encapsulates the best part of Grandpa. Like, I, if life continues to be interesting, then life continues to be worth it to me. Is maybe the most interesting and applicable version of his life philosophy because a lot of what makes this family what they are it it doesn't really ex- it just doesn't make sense in the context of like the world in fact the new york times has called this play basically one of the most uh persuasive works this is a quote one of the most persuasive works of pure escapism in broadway history right the fact mm. that a family like this believing this kind of stuff 
could continue in the way that they are is escapism, right? It's just, it's not really the way the world works. And it's not designed to say this is how your life should be. It's escapism. It's, this is, it's fun to see this what if imagination. Yeah, yeah, that's this kind of wouldn't it be nice or something like that where where this family could exist in this way. And really that that sort of conflict is brought to light between not directly between but in worldview between Grandpa and Alice cuz Alice has this need for the family to be just like a little more normal. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, and whatever it's, it's whatever interesting normal though, right? Is, because but... she consistently says how much she loves them and how much she even enjoys their eccentricity. But there's something about when that it comes time for that to butt up against the rest of the world that that starts to cause her uh, uh, her disconcerting behavior, her, her frustration with what's going on. The stage directions say that of the whole family, she's the one that has daily contact with the rest of the world. That's how she's described. She escaped the tinge of mild insanity that, uh, that occupies the rest of this family. And so she's fond of them. And she doesn't want to change them. In fact, she tells that to Tony. I wouldn't want to ask them to change. But it's it's when that family butts up against the rest of the world that she reacts so strongly. So I don't know if it's shame or embarrassment or uh, just frustration with how badly the family fits into the cogs and gears of like the daily life of the business world or whatever. Yeah, and just and and perhaps even just like her needs not being met. Like the last scene that uh, she she's kind of starting to leave, and she's being as civil as she can to everyone, even though the kind of zaniness of the family has caused her to feel like she has to break off this relationship with someone she loves. She's being as civil as she can, but finally it comes to light that no one has called her a cab, and she's asked like hours ago for people to call her a cab. <laughs> There's and a great it's line like, where the the, yeah. ca- the doorbell rings, and Alice or somebody is like. Oh, I think it must be Alice because she doesn't know nobody's called her a cab. She goes like, that must be my cab. And the audience, dramatic irony because the audience says nobody called the cab. And Grandpa yep. goes, if it is, that would be incredibly good service. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and previous to that, like what it, it comes, it comes to light um, that like sh- she told someone who told someone who told someone who told someone and none of them, none of them actually did it. And then she gets like kind of the only like breakthrough tirade in this play of like, this is the problem. Like no one ever is listening. No one can like hold on to the fact that I need, like I needed something and asked for something and, 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 and it didn't come through. Um, and so, so that, that's the line where you get like the, why can't we just be like a meat and potatoes and two vegetables sort of family every once in a while. Well, and um. it, the thing that she finally blows up about the cab thing is interesting because it's another instance where it's the family's connection with the rest of the world that is the thing that drives her over the edge, right? It's not yeah. that Essie made another thing of candy. It's not that the Russian ballet teacher is over teaching crazy ballet in the middle of the living room. It's not that mom is working on another player painting. It's another thing where the family fails to connect with the logic of the rest of the world, right? If a cab needs to come, somebody needs to call the cab. And because they fail that little test, that's that final thing that pushes her over the edge. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so I I agree that she has like a deep love for the family, and and I think there's probably big like enormous relief when it turns out Tony also like loves this weird family. But there is like a hesitancy to believe it in her, a hesitancy, a hesitancy to to believe that there that there that there can exist this kind of zaniness and eccentricity in a family, and have it relate to to her relationship with the outside world at all. So, so you have that kind of tension throughout which eventually I think in that final scene is what grandpa is speaking to almost more than he's speaking to Kirby, Mr. Kirby about it he's kind of speaking into the what if what if what if these were more compatible or what if what if you just let some of that other stuff go <laughs> which is kind of that again that kind of fantastical uh, message perhaps but one that is interesting especially in light of 1936 especially in light of like American uh, consumerism and capitalism it's just an interesting message for him to be taking towards the end of that play. Well, and and I love what you said about the fact that she disbelieves that Tony is uh, as um, as accepting of the family as she is. Because I agree, it, 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 I've always sort of found her objection to this to marrying Tony on the basis of the families not getting along slightly odd to me. I don't know if it's a cultural thing, like in the thirties, your families, because nobody moved away, like families needing to get along because you'll see them all the time and they will see each other all the time is just like a bigger deal. Or if there's just, it, it's more about Alice's internal shame at not being accepted by the Kirby's. Like she wants to be something in their eyes that her family doesn't let her be. But, the, the objection has always seemed odd because everybody, at least in her family and Tony himself, the Kirby's don't take this position, but the, Tony and her family are all like, this is fine. Get, you know, I, Tony's still I, at no point in the play does Tony like, you're right. This is never going to work. In fact, right. to me, one of the things that was interesting to me as I came back to the script is how similar Tony and grandpa are like from the minute we meet Tony, he is like a product of this family, right? Grandpa has this anti-business anti sort of the nose to the grindstone eight hours a day, fill your life with work attitude. And so when Tony comes in right away, they start asking him about his job. Um, and so they, they're impressed that he's the vice president of this firm. And Tony replies, well, you know what that means? Vice president. All I have, is a desk with my name on it. Penny, is that all? Don't you get any salary? Tony, well, a little. More than I'm worth, I'm afraid. I mean, those two lines by Tony sound like they could have come out of Grandpa's mouth. Absolutely, yeah. And that's actually, Grandpa says that at, at one point. Later in the play, he says to Kirby, Mr. Kirby, like, don't you remember what it was like when we were Tony? And and he's saying the things that we we wanted to do, and yet we, were we like, denied ourselves that, that path and, you know, committed and gave ourselves stomach ulcers and, and indigestion and, and tried to do it, but it didn't work out. And, and so, yeah, I agree that Tony kind of right off the bat has this this other energy, this energy. He says that he's been traveling the world, that he took a year and studied at Cambridge, and now he's back because I guess I have to face the world, I think is his line. Um, but but he, I agree, he has this sort of camaraderie with Grandpa right away, which which I, I watched a couple scenes from the um, uh, Capra movie that had uh, 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 Jimmy Stewart in it, 
Um, and 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 it, and it and it reads that way. You have that sort of like he like shows up. He's like, oh wow, this is a guy who's doing like what I want to be doing, and he's like sixty or whatever. One, uh, so you have that kind of envy, or 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 maybe envy is maybe a little too strong, but that like desire to live the way in which he sees this family materialize for Tony quite early. And Tony is somebody who, after graduating from his university, he went on, and we know took a couple of years off like traveling and such before he buckled down and you know quote unquote buckled down and got back into business so he shares that similar attitude to grandpa early on in the script grandpa's talking about um going to the uh, he likes to go to commencement ceremonies, I guess. That's just part of his personality. It doesn't really come up as much as you think it's going to based on how much they talk about it at the beginning, but apparently right. he likes to go to commencement ceremonies. And he, this is uh, something Grandpa says about the graduates. Um, uh, the graduates, I'm filling in a little bit, then the quote, they just sit there in their cap and gown, get their diplomas, and then along about 40 years from now, they suddenly say, where am I? And that's like that central yeah. fear that, or the central concern that motivates the grandpa life philosophy that has enveloped the rest of this family. And that, to me, you can very clearly see that idea in Tony from very early on, that he it fits in with the family in some ways better than Alice does, who, when the Kirbys are going to come over, Alice tries to hide all of the stuff in the living room. She wants to put the snakes away. She wants to put the, the printing press away all of this stuff and she says oh grandpa I'm not trying to hide anything don't you understand I'm not trying to pretend we're something that we're not well yeah Alice you definitely are meanwhile Tony's <laughs> the one who brings the family on the wrong night so they will his family on the wrong night so they will see Alice's family for what they truly are I mean the, these two young this young couple are they're almost in the wrong families Right, yeah, they kind of see each other's world and both want something yeah, from it. grass is greener, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And both of them try to maneuver their way into that world with different tactics. Um, you, you have you have Alice trying to kind of change both herself, maybe herself, but certainly her family to uh, to accommodate that world. And then you have Tony kind of lying um, and manipulating a little bit <laughs> to to uh, make make sure that, that that the families connect. You also have Tony kind of trying to make his family see. Um, what what else his family could be? Not just the kind, not just that he wants to share this kind of awesome family and 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 his and his relationship with Alice with them, but also like almost a little bit of of uh, in the, in the last scene he says that he's like dug through his dad's old letters and found all these passion projects of his dad's um that 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 he doesn't pursue anymore. So you kind of get the sense too that Tony is on this kind of saving mission for his family as well of like, maybe if I, maybe if, you know, Alice has a cool family. What if I were, were able to show my family, their family and all their glory and something would change. And again, in the kind of fantastical fairy tale, almost sort of setting that we're in, it works. He comes over, the curse is broken and, and his dad like wakes up to his old, old passions a little bit and is able to, to engage the kind of eccentricity of this family. And to me, that's where the symmetry between Alice and Tony breaks down a little bit because, you know, each family is on the end of the spectrum, right? This comedy works by way of contrast. Two extremes smashed together. This is uh, this is the 
Neil Simon play about bad roommates, right? This is every play about two opposite kinds of people smashed together. But in this case, it's two opposite kinds of families, ends of the spectrum smashed together. And so you have in the middle these two young people who each see something in the other's family that they admire or are interested in. But the way that you put it, right, Tony's on a saving mission for his family. He wants his family to change. He's actively engaged in trying to get his family to change. Whereas, as we've discussed, that's not true of Alice. She's not really trying to change her family. Really, she's trying to make up for her, the, the, the embarrassment, right. the, the awkwardness, the problems that her family have created for her or maybe even trying to hide it from others but she openly says several times she doesn't really want them to change she is invested in who the family is at some deep level but when it starts to butt up against the outside world she wants to hide it more than change them and for occasionally good reason i mean let's talk about some of the things that like float through the door right you have a tax collector who 20 years of no income tax there's there's another famous instance of someone not paying in- income taxes and going to jail for a long time so that's certainly a fear that 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 should be uh, attributed there's a goon squad that shows up because ed has been passing out propaganda about blowing up things <laughs> to people um and so so there's there's some definitely like kind of worrisome things that Alice is is like noticing and trying to get in tr- trying to derail just a little bit but but not in such a way that that it that that it I agree that 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 it changes the family dynamic completely because there is this like real synergy and love between everyone. It's just that Alice ha- Alice goes out. <laughs> Alice leaves the house sometimes and realizes the world that they're yeah, in. She's, I mean, she's problems. got a job in an investment firm or a, or an accounting firm, yeah. or whatever sort of financial company Kirby and Sons is. Like nobody else in the whole family seems to have any kind of job as sensible nope. and like connected with the outside world is that in fact do any of them really ever leave besides their daily grandpa's daily walk going to the commencements the guy goes around (laughs) and passes out candy but other than that things come to them I think so. And even even the like kind of oddity of Mr. DePina, who is, is there, he says that he showed up like eight years ago. And at least the line says, I showed up eight years ago and I've just never left. And you kind of go, wait, 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 you, you never left? <laughs> or, <laughs> but, so, but there is that aspect of like a very insulated sort of family dynamic. And it's even nodded to in, when, when, the, when the Kirby's show up. And Grandpa says, oh, we're just having a night in right now and enjoying the I think family. he even says, like, a calm night in. Like, yeah. for us, yeah. this is nothing, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the moment where the Kirbys show up, I, I just love. It is such a great example of what playwrights can do, of what writers can do, of what artists can do. Because it is one of those moments where everything is said in the action. And we go on to get what happens next by virtue of the dialogue, but we don't need to understand anything more, right? The house is crazy. They're all worried about this family that's going to come tomorrow night. They've got all these plans to clean up their act and behave themselves tomorrow night. They're setting that up. It's 
crazy tonight. And the Kirby's walk in in full evening dress. And that is all you need to understand the comedy of the situation, the problems that are about to face this family. I mean, that's all you need to predict what's going to happen next is these this family walking in in full evening dress. Two characters you've never met. But right. because they're in association with Tony, who we have met, we know who they are. We know who they are by virtue of the way they're dressed. And the way they're dressed is so antithetical to the way the family exists as they walk into this house. I mean, it is, it's, such, it's such a great moment in a comedy for everything to be set up in just this one visual image. The family in full evening dress in the middle of this crazy wild house going on around them. It's also one of the few moments in the play where you see just a little bit of self-awareness kick in for some of the characters, especially the ones who haven't bought in as fully to the mission statement of the family as grandpa. You see uh, Penny react. You see Essie react. You see <laughs> Mr. Depina, who is who is like posing for a Roman discus thrower painting at the moment, react. And all of them kind of have this, oh, no moment. It's only Grandpa who stands up and is like, no, this is the philosophy that I chose to live by. We're going to have dinner. It's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so so you kind of get that 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 moment of of, uh, of realization on the, on the family as well as they see this thing that they, if, if, even if they don't feel a personal sense of shame around it, they feel the shame for on Alice's behalf and everyone like kicks into go mode, right? There's this great bit where people just keep running behind <laughs> the, the Kirby's, whether to get groceries or to go tell Alice something or to run into the kitchen. There's like breakneck sprinting happening <laughs> as the Kirby's are sitting on the couch with grandpa talking about what's happening. <laughs> and this is sort of frenetic trying to recover the, the night from the chaos that is ensuing. And we, as the audience, I think we realize the thing that Alice realizes in that evening, which is that as the Kirbys interact with the family and as the family struggles to make things more normal for this one evening, I think we all realize, along with Alice, this never would have worked, even if they had come on the right night. And they had put away the snakes and they had put away the xylophone and the fireworks didn't explode. You know, even if things had gone the way that they had hoped they had gone in terms of the pre-planning, the idea that this family was ever going to be able to pass as an acceptable version of a family in light of who the Kirbys are and who they present is ludicrous. And so by way of seeing a more extreme version of this interaction, we sort of learn that even the more moderate interaction they were hoping for just could not have been successful. Successful. Right. There's just no 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 way that they would have been able to keep it all in lock for a night. Um, <laughs> and 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 that's certainly true. Or or even that the outside world would not have broken in because apparently that's happening more often for this family now too. Um, so so you have yeah absolutely the the the, the juxtaposition of that um, the heightened juxtaposition of it being the night that is the chaotic night as opposed to the attempt at normalcy really puts it into focus and I think probably pushes Alice to the edge that she gets to um, like perhaps, perhaps there would have been like a, another reckoning if it had been a normal ish night, but, but the, the, the extreme juxtaposition pushes her towards I'm ending it and I'm leaving town um, because there's just no way that this could possibly work. There's no way Tony could actually want this to work after what happened last night. Yeah. And, and what Alice is expecting to happen next in her life after she says, 
I guess I guess her decision is because of who my family is, I can't have the things I want in my life. And at the same time, because of her deep love for them and her unwillingness to ask them to change, she is she's not willing to leave them either. Right. That's what she says to Tony. Like, uh, you know, some people could just break it off from their families and, you know, go off and be who they want. But I'm not I can't do that. We're too close. I want to be I love my family. I want to be around my family. So you, you sort of wonder about this going away. Is this a moment where she's going to refocus and say this, you know, uh, this is the sacrifice. Sacrifices I have to make in my life to continue to be part of that family, and I need some time alone to be willing to make those sacrifices? Or is there a decision looming for her? Is the speech that she gave Tony earlier about how she was never going to be able to leave her family now coming in to question again? What her plan is is unclear to us, and I think it's unclear to us because it's unclear to her. All we know is that from her point of view, there has been a disaster. And what makes it so funny and so great is that from Nobody else in the family's point of view has there been a disaster. Alice leaving is a disaster <laughs> forthcoming, but the evening spent in jail was awesome. <laughs> right. Everyone was fine with it. Yeah. They're all telling funny stories about what happened. I mean, it's the it's another thing that this family just lets roll off their backs. Now, they're all worried about Alice leaving, so the mood is somber. But the mood is somber about what's about to happen, not what happened last night. Right. Yeah. Which is which also seems to be true of Tony when he comes into the scene. Certainly he has that sort of weight. And even I would, I, I, I'm I'm a little sad that Mrs. Kirby doesn't show up at the end of this play because it feels absolutely she's yeah, a great character. She is. Yeah. And it feels sort of like a, a, a hollow ending that just Mr. Kirby shows up and has this sort of similar realization that maybe that didn't matter all that much. And maybe I do need to stop worrying so much. Well, it's, so, a, so it's an example of the script. It just, you know, being nearly 100 years old. Right. I mean, it, there yeah. there's some stuff in this script that that butts against what we now know and believe is right, right? I mean, the the two African-American characters in the play are heavily stereotyped, basically servant characters. That's a problem for the play nowadays. The fact that Mrs. Kirby doesn't show up again, really, what, what is that about? It's about sexism, right? It's about the dad needing to be the yep. one who changes and makes the decision. What happens to the mom is not as big a deal. Yeah, and, and in a less problematic but also just a dated way the grand appearance of the duchess as you said is often changed because we just don't we don't live in a world where the the vernacular is oh the russian empire fell 10 years ago um yeah. and the royal yeah. family is working in restaurants around new york <laughs> like that's not really that's not in our newspapers that doesn't really matter um to to us and or often doesn't matter so so uh so yeah there are some definitely dated elements and things that need revision in it even as there's some pretty strong through lines in it that still resonate and still call people to to theaters to come and, and see it. Some really well-crafted moments of writing in theater. The game that they play while the Kirbys are over with yeah. the four suggestive words and how they immediately respond to them and, and the difference between how Mr. Kirby and Miss Kirby respond. I mean, that's really good writing. That's a, yep. It is simultaneously advancing the plot because the plot is that the Kirbys get more and more uncomfortable in this family's home. It's a loose plot, but so it is. And it reveals something about their marriage and it reveals something about them individually and it's in the form of a game so it's not like people screaming at each other high drama achieving things it's in this sort of structured false facade of this game i mean it is really that is such a great moment in this play 
And you get to see that it's also this dawning realization because Penny is the one who instigates the game and she pushes pretty hard for it, even though Alice is saying they don't, they don't like games. Don't do this, mom. And Penny, Penny is even like, no, more no. like you can't play a game with lust and sex as <laughs> right. two of the things in the game. You just met these people. <laughs> yeah. Come on, mom. And then you see Penny like thinking it's working, thinking it's working great. And then she like slowly keeps reading Mrs. Kirby's yeah, answers and starts to dawn on her that, oh, oh, no, this is going to go terribly. And Mr. Kirby's answers are funny in and of themselves. Yep. And then you layer on Mrs. Kirby's antithetical responses. And it's just, it's so funny. It's one of those moments where you you know that it's really funny. So you're reacting to the incredible comedy. And then at the same time, if you have any feeling in you for writing you're you're also reacting to how good this moment is in terms of the writing and structuring you're like the joy bubbles up in you from both things yeah it's true and there's so many moments like that we could keep talking about this play for another hour probably just has so many little rabbit holes to go down um, we barely talked at all about paul the eccentric firework maker of the basement um there's just so many great little things uh but we are alas running out of time for this podcast fortunately the conversation does not have to end just now we'd love to keep talking about this play with all of you out there in podcast land find us on facebook instagram or twitter if you would like to continue talking about this play you know it's, it's kind of rare that people want to just sit down and talk a play about a play especially if they're not in it or doing it or reading it at the moment so our our uh social media is all great places to do that they all have the username at no script podcast we also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com find us on any, any of those sites we would love to be talking about this play with you absolutely if you would please recommend this podcast to your family and friends anybody you know that likes scripts or literature or just theater in general they're going to be interested in this discussion of stories and writing that we get into every week. So send them our way. We're on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, all those kinds of places. But you can also just like us on Facebook and then every Monday the link to the new episode will appear on our page and you can click and listen from there. Next week we're back to murder. We're back into it once more into the breach. We'll be jumping back into our themed month proper. So uh, until next week when we are talking about that script, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see you next week. 